So can we, um, can we start with a prayer? Is that all right? Since we're, we're going to be looking at Luke 15. Heavenly Father, we ask you to pour out your grace and your wisdom upon all who are gathered here today. Help us to recognize the truth of your love and mercy for us. Help that mercy to take root in our lives and to bear fruit in the way we, we love our brothers and sisters and all those we interact with. Help us to be ambassadors for Christ and to carry Jesus with us wherever we go. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So um, Father Eric asked me to, to, to do this talk on, on, on mercy. And, and this is the talk I, I gave to my parish um, on a, a, a kind of parish retreat. And, and it starts really with, with Merton's idea of mercy, which is, we will get to Luke 15, I promise. Um, but Merton says, God is mercy within mercy, wrapped in mercy. And the idea is that the trajectory of, of any life is, is into there. And, and the way I think of it sometimes is that we start when the Holy Spirit captures us. You know, and then the Holy Spirit leads us deeper into the mystery of the fullness of who God is. Um, so the first thing you need to remember is that God is mercy. People will tell you that God is justice, but it doesn't say that anywhere in Scripture. Not really. Not in the, in the New Testament. Um, God is merciful. Um, there's, a great, there's a great line or a great story from one of the, the rabbis, one of the Hasidic rabbis, um, I think I'm right in saying, uh, in Prague. And, and he said that when we die, we, 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 we get judged, obviously. And we, we, we kind of get upstairs, and God's sitting on his throne, and he looks at us. And the, the countenance of God at that moment is, is fierce because he sees us for who we are. Not just the good stuff, but the stuff that we, we don't want to own up. And he looks at us, and we, and we might feel judged. And at that point, the rabbi went on to say to his congregation that, you know, you're probably going to be afraid. And he said, and if God stayed on that throne, he said, you'd, you'd be right to be. But God, he says, gets off his throne of justice, and he goes and he sits on his throne of mercy. And, and that's the space where, where we are looked at from God. And, and probably the theme of this talk is that, you know, that idea that, that things that we think are important, in God's eyes, are not. There's a great line from Julian of Norwich, and I know some of you will have heard this, where Julian says in one of the showings, um, our failings hindereth him not in loving us. Our failings hindereth him not in loving us. In other words, when God looks at you, he doesn't look at your faults. Because they are, they are negations of being. They're negations of who you are. They're not the essential you. God looks rather at, at who you are in, in his eyes, and that is always uh, a beloved child of God. Always. Now, lots of us weren't trained that way. Lots of us were trained in a, in a very different way. Those of us who were older particularly might have encountered a God who appeared to be a bit more judgmental. Um, someone you might call the, the um, what Jared Hughes, the Jesuit author, talks about the God of Uncle Albert. And Uncle Albert as God is, um, is that uncle that you go and see with your parents when you're a kid. And, you know, you go into the house and it's got a slightly musty smell. It's a bit damp. Uncle Albert has got really bad teeth and he has bad breath and he smells. And you spend an hour with him and you're bored stiff. And your parents are bored stiff. And in fact, everyone in that room is bored stiff. And at the end of it, um, Uncle Albert looks at you and he breathes on you, so you kind of get the full 
effectively smell. Uh, and he says, um, he says, you are going to come next week, aren't you? And, and you look at your parents for, for a bit of guidance, and your parents look scared, and they go, yeah, 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 go, go. And so you look at Uncle Albert, and you say, yep, I'll be here next week. And Uncle Albert says, just as well you said that. And he walks over to the wall, and there's a door in the wall, and he opens the door. And on the other side of the door is a flaming lake of fire where people are being thrown in on a regular basis. And there's people there with, well, demons there with little forks and that kind of give them a good prodding so that they get cooked properly. And, and he says, because if you don't, that's where you're going to end up. Lots of people, that was, their, that was their first introduction to God. And there's no mercy in that. There's just obligation and duty. And more importantly, fear. And, and fear is, is a bad thing. It's something that kills faith. You know, yes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, as it says in Scripture, but fear of the Lord, you're at your way, is not fear, it's awe. To be in awe of God is a completely different thing. That's healthy. To recognize our own creatureliness is a good thing. To get any, anywhere more kind of worked up about that um, and to actually start dreading God is, is probably a bad thing. And I think it's one of the things that Francis, if you read Francis's stuff over um, the last few years since he's become Pope, the one theme that he comes back to again and again and again is, is, is to experience the mercy of God. And, and, and that's why we've got this year of mercy. The idea that at the heart of who God is, is this idea of mercy. And, you know, Father Eric, I know has told you that, that one of the things that is part of that in, in, in the Old Testament is this idea of hesed, which can be tra- translated as, as kind of faithful love. You know, God is always in covenant with his people, and he's always been betrayed by them. He's always been let down by them. You know, and what does God do? God keeps coming back. God always keeps coming back. God always forgives them. You know, some of the, some of the texts might give you this idea that God is, 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 is angry, and I think, you know, but then <laughs> if you look at some of the unfaithfulness of Israel... He's probably got a right to be angry in the sense. But, but what he wants is, is just a response to that hesed. He wants, he wants love. Peter Kreef, who is a philosopher and a lecturer at Boston College, you know, says the only thing that God really wants in the whole universe that he can't have is our freely given love. Our freely given love. Now, God is relational. That's why God is Trinity. You know, it's not just a mathematical formula. You know, it's not Patrick looking at, it, at the, the, um, the shamrock and going, look, small green and split three ways. You know, that isn't what it is. It's a relational formula. It's this idea that, that God is in dialogue with us, that God is in relationship with us, that God is always leading us deeper into this mystery of his love for us. And, and that is what we're about. Now, in order to get there, there are certain things I think we probably need to deal with. And one of them is our understanding of, for instance, sin. You know, you can talk about structural sin or societal sin, um, and that's, that's something that John Paul II talked a lot about in his pontificate. I think Veritatis Splendor was, was had a big chunk of that about, the, um, about that. And, and there's not a lot we can do about societal sin, to be fair, because we're trapped in the system. But what we can do is we can look at our own sinfulness, our own brokenness, to use a better word, I think. The, the Greek word for it is hamartia. And hamartia is taken from the image of pulling a bow. Now, if you've done any youth work with, um, with young people, 
and you take them away for, for the week, at some point you've probably ended up pulling a bow because um, most of our kids in England have a go at that, you know, Sherwood Forest, Robin Hood and all of that stuff. Um, so what you do when you pull a bow is you, you hold your bow like that. That's the, it's called the belly of the bow and you get your fingers. Normally you get two. Um, for those of you who are interested in history, that's why English archers always used to do that to the French because um, it was a way of saying to them, you know, if you, if you come towards us, we've still got our fingers, um, so you're going to die, um, which kind of put people off. Um, and to be fair to the French, if they caught an archer, the first thing they did was they cut off these two fingers. So, so think of it this way. You're grabbing, grabbing the bow, so you've got the belly of the bow there, you've got your fingers there, and you pull, right? And if you pull properly and you bring it all the way back here, and then you've got a clean release, then whatever else happens, the arrow is going to fly on some degree of, of truthfulness. Right? It might not hit the target, but it's going to fly properly. When I, when I watch my kids, my year fives and year sixes, so my, my 10-year-olds and 11-year-olds trying to pull a bow for the first time, they, they can't do this. So they're more like this. Okay, and then they release from there, and, and the arrow basically goes... Doom. And it falls short. And they feel really upset because they feel they've, they've let themselves down. And of course, later on... After, after pulling the bow five or six or seven times, they're going to pull the bow all the way back and they're going to fire properly. But what Jesus talks about with sin, tamartia, that sense of falling short, that's all it is. It just falls short of the target. But it doesn't mean you're not on target, it just means that you fall short. That's how Jesus talks about sin. Um, and it's not necessarily often the way that we think about it. You know, but that's, that's how he talked about it, that's what he meant. So the first thing to remember is that in our sinfulness, it doesn't change the basic reality that we're good. It just means that sometimes we fall short. And all of us have done that. All of us have done that. So that's, that's biblical understanding of sin, to fall short. And then the, I suppose the other thing that comes, it comes to is, is your anthropology, you know, how you see yourself. And there are two ways of, of looking at mankind, two basic ways in the, in the Christian faith. Um, the, the Roman Catholic and Orthodox tradition and the, the Reformed tradition. And if you look at it as, um, say, from the Reformed tradition, then what we are is, is a pile of dung. That's if you read Luther and Calvin. We, we are basically a pile of dung, and then what happens is God graces us, so it snows. So we get covered in snow, okay? While the snow's on there, then we are we're kind of loved. As soon as the snow melts, what are you left with? A pile of dung. Okay? Now, if you grow up thinking you're a pile of dung, it's going to have consequences. Isn't it? You're going to see yourself in a very negative light. You're going to see the world in a pretty negative light. And, and God bless Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a great man in many respects and, and somewhat of a theological genius but he didn't like himself. So when he read scripture, he always read it through that lens. Now, you might think, and some Catholics do experience this, um, you know, as, as being a Catholic position, but it's not. The Catholic position is that we're a pile of snow that occasionally gets covered with a, a bit of dung. Okay? <laughs> occasionally. Because when we fall short. But the essential nature of, of, of humanity is basically good. It's not just... Everyone says oh, about the fall and we're all fallen. That's to misunderstand the basic Catholic doctrine of original blessing as well. There's original sin, yes, but before that there's original blessing. 
What does it say in Genesis? God sees that all he has made, it was good. When he looks at us, it says God sees all that he's made, and it was very good. So before anything else, you've got the blessing. You've always got to remember that. So for us, there's always going to be another fall of snow. There's going to be more grace, because that's what God is. That's who God is. God is graceful, full of grace. And, and that, that grace is the, the Holy Spirit living in the heart and the mind of the believer. And if you can believe that for yourself, then that leads you deeper into this mystery of, of hesed, of mercy, of compassion, and of, of, of the Trinity, the idea of this relational God who wants to love us. And I think that's part of the problem. I think a lot of Catholics struggle with it. And you can't really go any further until you address it. So if you, if you can't make the distinction between shame and guilt, then you're in trouble. Now, guilt tells you you've done a bad thing, doesn't it? But does it alter your relationship with yourself? Does it tell you that you're a bad person? Yes or no? I would say guilt, and I know a lot about guilt because I'm a priest, um, you know, and it's my job to make you all feel guilty, um, as, as Eric says as well. Um, you know, guilt is something that reminds us that we, we do fall short and we get it wrong, okay? But it shouldn't change our essential knowledge that we are beloved of God. Now, shame, or toxic shame, whatever phrase you want to use, um, shame basically tells you that you are bad because you've fallen short, but you're so bad that God can't forgive you. Now, if you believe that, then no matter how many times you go to the sacrament of reconciliation, and I am speaking from experience on this one as a seminarian, you're never going to feel forgiven. You're never going to feel free. Because it's bad theology. And bad theology and bad religion will always lead you into bad places. So if you've got a sense of shame, in order to experience that mercy that, that God wants us to have, you have to let go of it. One of the things I always say to, to, to my conf confessees when they come, not that we're kind of overrun in, in, in England with, with people going to confession, um, but what I do say to them is, you know, when you've been forgiven, don't be tempted to pick the thing up as you go out. You've got to leave it there. The whole purpose of reconciliation is it's a safe place to leave your stuff. So put it down, let go of it, and walk out the door. But most Catholics, in my experience, most English Catholics that I've met, the first thing they do, the last thing they do as they go is they, they, they pick up their burden, which they've been carrying for the past 40 years, and they put it back over the shoulder, and they walk out. And they might feel a little bit better to start with because, you know, they've actually put the burden down for a while, so they've got a little bit more energy left. But in a week's time, they're going to feel bowed down by it in the same way that they have been for the rest of their life. Now, that's what bad religion does to you, puts you in a place of, of shame, not a place of guilt, a place of shame. And that's an even bigger sin than the one you think you've committed. Because that's spiritual pride. Because if you won't let God forgive you, if you won't let God love you, then who's God in your life? And it ain't God. It's you. Or it's me. Because you're having the effrontery to think about it, to look at the creator of the universe and say, I actually know better than you, and I know that you can't forgive me because I'm not, I'm not worthy of it. 
Loads of us do that. Loads of us do it, and, and sometimes it might just be for a moment, it might be for a few months, but for some people and who I've met over the years, that, that is just because of the way they've been formed, the, 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 the way that life has treated them, that's where they're trapped. And you, you kind of pray that one day they, they walk out of that door and they feel free. Because the purpose of religion is not to enslave us. You know, the purpose of religion is to set us free. Jesus says, I came to give you life, and I came to give you life to the full. St. Paul reminds us that God wants us to be happy. You know, I'm not saying anything that the church hasn't said. I'm just saying that for a lot of us, we, we don't necessarily hear that message. You know, and, and what tonight's about really is asking you to reflect on the nature of your relationship with God. You know, are you trapped? Are you carrying stuff that you should have put down a long time ago? And we do. When I was in, in seminary, I, I had one of the worst cases of, of, um, of scruples, I think, in, in, in recorded history. I mean, I, they, should have, they should have written a book about it. Um, you know, I used to, if, I, if I had a bad day, I would be in confession, you know, twice a day. Twice a day. You know, I used to have a tame priest. <laughs> um, his nickname was Funboy Fun Frank, because he was dead, he was a moralist, he was dead serious, God bless him. Um, but he had a really good heart. But basically, we, you know, I'd go and see him, and, and it'd go in the morning, and it'd be like, Do you wanna, yeah, I want to go to confession. Like, okay. <laughs> bless me, Father. <laughs> and then, come afternoon, after the siesta, he'd go back again. And he'd look at me and he'd go, you know, what, what are you doing? You know, what, why, why are you doing this to yourself? And, and I, I would just look at him and I'd say, I don't know. I really don't know. But I just feel really, really bad. And he'd go, all oh, right, okay. No, 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 no. Give me absolution. And then, he, and then he'd tell me to go and see my spiritual director. So I'd go and see my spiritual director. And I had a very patient spiritual director. God bless him. Pat Kilgareth, who, you know, just for looking after me, should be probably qualified for sainthood. Um, you know, and, and he, he, he basically, over a period of five years, he, 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 asked, he, he taught me to take the first steps of, of acceptance, forgiveness, and, and reconciliation. Because the thing is, any priest can, t- can say the right words. I mean, we all know how to tell you that you're loved, right? And, and most of us, when we look out at you, honestly, we believe that you are. You might not believe it yourself, but we do. We believe that you're loved. We believe that you're forgiven. We believe that God has a purpose for you. We don't necessarily believe that ourselves, though. Because we're all on the same journey. And you'd be the same if, you're, if you were standing up here. You'd want people to know that they were loved. And you'd be there saying, oh, yeah, yeah, God loves you. But ask yourself the question, would you necessarily believe it yourself? Or is, are there stages in the journey of, of, of love and mercy and reconciliation? You know, and I would say we're on this kind of pilgrimage where we, we kind of start in a, in a if we're lucky, and, and it, is, it is down to luck really and, and God's grace and, and your parents, you know, you, you grow up knowing you're loved. And then you move on from that, and that's healthy. But some people don't. You know, my, my mum, God bless her, 10 years dead this year, love her to bits, you know, learnt a lot from my mum. But my mum was a massive passive-aggressive you know, and, and, and she had this ability to, to kind of withhold love, 
when, when I upset her, and Paul upset her, my brother. And, 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 I, and it's because of the orphanage experience she had in Ireland and, and, and anything that, where that would remind her of that. It was almost like she went back to that experience of not being loved, of being let down, of not having one to care for her. And the only way she could deal with it was to shut down emotionally. And that would be, if we were lucky, that'd be 10 minutes. You know, sometimes it could be 20 minutes. If it was really bad, it could be half a day. And, and she couldn't help it. And I have no blame against her for that. I think she was a remarkable woman. And, I, you know, I'm just so grateful that she's my mum. Because I learned so much from her. But I also recognised that mum had that journey. And, and she started from a dark place. One of, the, one of the great triumphs of my mum's life, I think, is at the end of it, she was in a much better place. You know, it was very rare that my mum would do that. We'd really have to kind of brass her off before, um, before she, would, she would do that. Um, and, and when we did, we probably deserved it, to be fair. Um, but but that, was, that was her journey. And, and you're all going to be different. You know, but you're all on the same journey. I'm on the same journey, Father Eric's on the same journey. Pope Francis is on the same journey. And it is this journey into self-acceptance, self-mercy. I hate to use the word self-love, but that's quite important. Um, but, it, but by doing all of those things, it's also a journey into who God is. And, and, and that's what we come to with, with Luke 15. So if you'll forgive me for a minute, I'll just get my... Like, like most people today, I've, my life is on my phone. And... Um, right, let's think. <sighs> you know, you can get a Bible for the phone. Did you know that? You actually get the Greek New Testament. Look. Greek New Testament on the phone. Seriously. In fact, I'm looking at it now. So, so let's look at our parables. So this is Luke 15. Now all the publicans and sinners were drawing near unto him to hear him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake unto them this parable, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, and having lost one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it. And when he, had, he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and his neighbours, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Okay. Right, so that's parable one. The first thing to remember is who this parable is addressed to. It's not addressed to the publicans and sinners because they know their need of mercy and grace, okay? It's, rege- it's, it's, it's actually addressed to people like us. Professionally, well, certainly me and Eric, professionally religious people, but also people who, who, who come to church, people who, who perhaps, you know, don't always look um, at other people with, with a degree of gentleness and mercy and compassion, and, and we're all prone to that. You know, one of the, I remember listening to Shane Claiborne, who's one of your great, I think one of your great religious leaders, um, who's inspired by the Franciscan tradition and, you know, and, and Mother Teresa. And um, one of the things that he said about his, um, his experience of Christianity in this country and in Europe is, you know, when people ask, when you ask a non-Christian what does Christianity look like, the first word they, 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 they come up with is not love. Is it? It's condemnation. It's judging somebody. It's not a pace of grace, in other words. 
And one of the things that Claiborne is, is really into is, is this, this idea that in order for Christianity to transform society and transform the world we live in, it has to get back to its roots. And, and primarily, its root is Jesus. And, and Jesus is all about mercy. And, and so we see that in, in, this, in this parable. You know, so he's talking to the, you know, the scribes and the, the, the Pharisees. And he says... And don't forget, this man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And, and why is that important? Because by doing that, Jesus makes himself ritually unclean. Because don't forget, a lot of Judaism in the first century is about ritual purity. You have to go to the mikvah, you have to wash yourself. If you don't wash yourself and then you interact with people who are sinful, then that sin almost transmits you know, to you. And, and yet Jesus offers this table fellowship to everyone, regardless of whether they deserve it or not. Um, and you can look at the, the latest document, for instance, that Francis has introduced on the, the love of the family, and the idea of the internal forum where people might, there might be a way back for people to the Eucharist who are on their second marriages, you know, with the right discernment and the, the right process followed. But in one sense, he's only doing what Jesus always did, you know, the Eucharist is not a reward, as, as Thomas Akempis says in the 1200s. He says, Eucharist is food for the journey. What we've done is we've turned it into a reward. And in doing that, I think Jesus is probably upset with us. Or disappointed, rather than upset. So, he's eating with them, so he makes himself unclean. But of course, that means that all these good people, who are Pharisees and scribes, they are unclean because they're in his company. And that makes them feel uncomfortable because it pushes them out of their comfort zone. And before we ever go at the, the scribes and the Pharisees, let's just remember that in the first century, a lot of the Pharisees believed that if, if one, one person, one human being, kept the law perfectly for a day, the Messiah would come, Israel would be saved and liberated, and the state, you know, Israel would be restored. The Romans would be kicked out of Palestine, and, and the, great, the great kingdom of God would be made present. Now, if you really believe that, that's noble, isn't it? Because that's 613 precepts of the law you've got to keep. Just think about that for a minute. We whinge about two. You know, love God and love your neighbor. That's hard enough. But 613 precepts, that, that affects everything you do. That affects how you wash your hands, for instance. So when you wash your hands, you can't wash your hands like that. Okay, you can't rub your hands like that, like we do. You have to wash your hands like that. So the, the water drains off there. If you don't do that, technically, you've not kept that law. Not making it up, it's in Scripture, you can look at yourself. But they believe that if they could do that, then that everything they were longing for would come about. And what Jesus is kind of trying to say to them in, in these parables is, it's not quite as simple as that. Or actually, it's not quite as complicated as that, because human beings tend to complicate things. And, you know, as, as, as the Greeks would say, God basically is simple. Um, so, so what does the parable look like? Well, the first thing to remember is, and, and, and I know I, we've, got, we've got somebody who is a, a shepherd in, 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 the, in, the, in the audience today, so, so I'm going to contradict that person, because um, I'm just thinking about what, and what we know about first century Palestine um, shepherds. But the shepherds, they were terrible people. They were. I mean, they were, they, were, they were thugs, thieves, brigands. 
and, and people who did it as a part-time job. That, you know, that's why Jesus, when he said, I am the good shepherd, we're going to listen to it this week in John, you can be sure that everyone in the, in the, in the crowd laughed. You know, what does a good shepherd look like? Because they were famous for being thugs and thieves. That's one of the great things about, about Luke's beginning in, in, in the infancy narrative, where he turns everything upside down and makes the first witnesses to the Christ child the shepherds. Because it's like, it's the thugs, the, you know, even in, the, even in the crib, Luke is saying, God looks at the world differently. Even in the crib, the first people who are going to come to, to worship the Christ child, to witness to him, are, are the brigands and the outsiders. And, and it's like Luke says, and that's going to be the whole of the gospel. It's aimed at them. So, you know, they were, they were bad. Okay. So let's just say, for instance, this guy is a good shepherd. Let me ask you a practical question. It's not your sheep, by the way, so you're just kind of doing it for somebody else, and you're getting paid for this. And it seems to be that you'd get paid for how many sheep you had left at the end of your shift. Okay? So, if you have one sheep, and, it, and it's always the, the young sheep, apparently, so it's a young, a young sheep who's a bit foolish, as, as young sheep and people tend to be at times, and we've, we've all been there, have we not? Um, goes wandering off. Okay? Goes wandering off into the desert, and it's lost. Now, your honest, honest answer. Would you leave your paycheck of 99 sheep and go after the one sheep that had got lost? Is anyone brave enough to say they would? Right. That's cool. That's cool. But most of us, because we're not as good as you, most of us would kind of look at our 99 sheep and think, that's my paycheck, that's my family's livelihood, and, and that, that thing's just gone off there, and, it, and it's only a sheep. And it's going to die anyway, because it's going to get eaten by wolves or mountain lions, or someone's going to nick it, or the shepherd probably. Um, and, and, you know, and we would just leave it, wouldn't we? Because that's the honest thing to do. That's the honest thing to do. And, and yet, what does, what, does, um, what does Jesus say? And he says, no, 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 no. And again, this is, don't forget, Luke turning the world upside down. He says, the shepherd goes after the one, and he leaves the 99 alone. Right? And he goes off, and he finds the sheep, puts it over his shoulders, and he brings it home. One of the earliest pictures we have of Jesus in, in Christian art is, is that image. And you'll find it at the catacombs of Santa Priscilla in Rome. I think it dates back to 89 AD. It's really, 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 really old. And it's, it's an incredible image because Jesus is a young man and he's got no beard. He looks very Roman, but then that's what, they, that's what we do, isn't it? I mean, how many, how many people really think that Jesus had blue eyes and blonde hair and looked like a surfer from California? Um, you know, he, he didn't. Last time I checked, he was Jewish. There are not many, you know, surfer dudes in, in first century Palestine. But we, we do. We make our, in our own image and likeness. But it's a beautiful image. And it was one of those images that, that took root in the church. You know, the image of the good shepherd who comes back with a lamb, having rescued him. Think about this for a minute. Do you think the 99 sheep are still there when he gets back? No. So he puts that sheep down, and he looks, and he thinks, oh, it's going to be a long day. And, and he goes off. He goes off, and he gets the other one. 
And the whole principle of the parable is this, this idea that, that God loves us so much that every time he goes off, and, and let's be honest, we've all got off into the wilderness on our own. I mean, we all have done that. Um, and God does come and find us. He does, and he brings us home. Um, but every, you've got to imagine God, this, this poor shepherd, kind of coming down and putting that one there and going, oh, right, then. kind of going over there and bringing it back. And, and it's never-ending. That's the whole point. It's never-ending because sheep don't learn easily. Apparently, they have leaders. You know, even the idea of sheep having leaders is a scary thought, actually. Um, but apparently, they do. They have leaders of the flock, and, and like 10 or 12 of them will lead the, the flock through the gate. Seriously. And, and the other reason why it's important is that in Israel, every sheep had a name. They didn't use dogs, and they didn't use whistles. Apparently, the shepherd would name their sheep. And then, when they, when they went to a watering hole, and like a wadi, and there were like three different flocks there, the shepherd would basically stand on one side, another shepherd would stand there, another shepherd would stand there, and they would call their sheep. There are not, many, there are not that many Jewish names. So you could imagine, can't you? You know, you kind of, Shimon, that's my name, Simon, Shimon. And all these sheep were kind of looking, you know, because they all recognized Shimon. But then they recognize the sound of the voice. They recognize the shepherd's voice. So instead of going to shepherd A, who's going to take them off to the, to the butchers, you know, kind of make a few bob on the side, they, they go to the right shepherd. They go to shepherd C or shepherd B or whatever. So the principle there is, is that God knows our name, that God always seeks us out, that God picks us up, carries us back when we need it, and, and he brings us back. But to the outside world, that... And this is something that St. Paul talks a lot about. It's foolishness. You know, but God's a fool. It says it in Scripture. But God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom because God sees the individual value of each human being and recognizes that human being as a beloved son or a beloved daughter. And if you've got a beloved son or a beloved daughter, you'll always go the extra mile. Always. Otherwise, you don't love them. So that parable, that's what that's about. It's about God seeking us out and God bringing us home. And that is a manifestation, I think, I think it would be fair to say, of, of mercy and of grace. So maybe that's the first parable we can look at. Now, and it says here, I say unto you that even so there shall be joy in heaven over one sinner that repenteth than over ninety and nine righteous people who have no need of repentance. By the way, he's being sarcastic there. Jesus was capable of sarcasm. And, and basically he's looking at them and saying, because you obviously don't have any need of repentance, do you? Because you're Pharisees and scribes and you're perfect. But they know that he's being sarcastic. They know that he's looking at them and saying, what's the difference between you and people who get lost? And there isn't really. Because we all get lost at times. You know, and we all need God to take us home. And that's what God does. You know, I point you to the figure at the back. And it costs. It costs God. But so does parenting. 
You know, if you're a good parent, you're going to make sacrifices. If you're a, a good doctor, you're going to make sacrifices. If you're a good nurse, you're going to make sacrifices. If you're a good teacher, you know, you will, you will go the extra mile for your pupil that you, you see might need your help. That's just the way good human beings are if they recognize mercy and grace um, and their own need of it. So what he's saying is, you know, why don't you why, change your hearts? You know, change your hearts. So the second one, what woman having ten pieces of silver... If she lose one piece, doth not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she find it. And when she hath found it, she calleth together her friends and neighbours, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Even so I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. This is a, a kind of stranger um, image, but again, the, the, the two things to remind, remind yourself of in this, in this, in this parable. One is... And there's one theory that scholars will tell you that the reason why it's so important to her, it's part of a dowry. Because they would wear the dowry. They would make, um, in, the, in the ancient world, they would, they would make um, jewellery out of it. So she would have worn a headdress with the coins when she got married. So, um, so you can understand that it'd be like losing a wedding ring. You know, it's a symbol of your, um, of your commitment. It's a symbol of your love. Um, so is she going to be upset by that? Yeah, of course she is. She's going to go and look for it. Does that mean she's going to turn the house upside down? Yeah. But the principle behind it is the same. It's the seeking, that God seeks us out. That mercy is an active force, it's not passive. If you don't believe that, if you don't like that interpretation, you could have the other one, which is that she's poor. And that's because she needs the money. The average, I think the average wage in the first century, we think, was one denarius a day. It's not a lot. You know, if you look at some of the, the ladies who work in the Philippines, for our clothing companies um, and our training shoe companies, um, and I don't, I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty because we're all, we're all trapped in the particular system that we live in, but, but certainly at one point, um, a certain um, swoosh-bearing um, company were, uh, were paying 85p a day to its uh, uh, female workers in, 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 in the Philippines. And they were working 16-hour days. And one of the things that they had to do was wear, a, pair, uh, wear um, a plastic bag between the legs. Because when they got off the, 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 the thing to, um, to go to the toilet, their, their pay was docked. So, um, so, you know, that's not too long ago. That's only about, what, 10, 10 years ago. I, I believe conditions have improved. Um, but then, so they should. I mean, <laughs> I think they get paid a couple of quid a day now, so, um, so maybe five bucks a day. W would any of you work for five bucks? I wouldn't. So maybe we could look at that woman as being, uh, you know, in, that, in, a similar, in a similar kind of, um, in a similar vein of, of desperation. And again, the idea that she goes looking for it and she finds it. You know, that which is hidden is brought to light. That which is lost is, is brought home. That which is, um, is, is lacking is, is restored. And again, the image of mercy then is restoration. So that's the second, you know, second thing about the, the parable. Not only is it active, that, that mercy goes looking for us, but also mercy restores us, you know, res restores us to, our, to ourselves. And then we've got this final parable. And, and this is the, the most famous parable along with the, the, the Good Samaritan in, and Luke, and, and, and it's somewhat erroneously known in, in certain circles 
as the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, it's not the parable of the prodigal son at all. It's the parable of the prodigal father. Because to be prodigal means to be generous and ever-giving. It's an old English word. And um, you could not describe either son as being generous and ever-giving because they both behave really badly. So what does it look like? A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of thy substance that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. Right, so, the first thing is, here's your dad. They're the two sons. You've got the younger and the elder. They both get the money. Right? The elder doesn't say, I don't want it. What do you think that says about their relationship with their father? The, way, the only way you inherit in Jewish law is when your dad dies. Okay? So if you want the money before he's dead, then that's just incredibly rude. At the very least, it's incredibly rude. Um, you know, it's also sinful because I should honour thy father and thy mother. So basically, they're treating their dad as if he is dead. And they're both guilty of that. Not just the youngster, both of them. Okay? So don't forget, Jesus is telling this story to this crowd, and, and, and you know, and this is the story he's kind of culminating with, so he's been leading up to this. So that's strike one, to use an American phrase. Okay? And I know you only get three strikes in baseball, but... Um, but, you know, there's going to be more than three strikes. Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there he wasted his substance with riotous living. Like most young people do. That's called university nowadays. Um, <laughs> one of the things that's really important in, in Jewish thought is the land. Okay? The land is really important. We still call it the Holy Land. The land is a gift. Okay, it's God's gift to his people. It's a place where they can be at home. It's a place where they're supposed to stay rooted. They're not really supposed to leave it. Okay, so this kid does what lots of kids do. And, and basically, he takes the gift of the land, which is holy, don't forget, and he goes off somewhere else. So, strike two, he, he, he treats the land as dead. Now, that's as bad as strike one. Because not only has he disowned his dad, which is his family, he's also disowned his heritage, or his, his, his gift, his birthright. Okay? So strike two. And at this point, everyone listening to it would have been jeering him. You know, because it's not like, you know, Jesus talking to the crowd isn't like me and Eric talking to a congregation, um, you know, where, where you all just basically sit there and listen, hopefully, or read the newsletter or whatever you do. Um, it, rather, it is, you know, they'd have been screaming at him, oh yeah, he deserves this, it's two, it's two strikes, it's terrible, it's terrible, it's terrible. So, you know, it's, it's much more interactive. So it's two strikes, two things he's done wrong. When he'd spent all there, there arose a mighty famine in that country, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to one of the citizens of that country. So strike three. Because don't forget, we've talked about ritual uncleanness, Okay. So he's now working for a goyim, okay? So you've got the citizen there. And he's working for him. There's no mikveh there, 
There's no place he can be ritually clean because he's not, it's not the land, you know, and it's probably not part of the diaspora. So, um, so at that point, he is ritually impure. In other words, he's starting to become dead to himself. And again, people will be going, I can't believe that, it's terrible. I would never do that. How could he do that to his father? Oh, he's already disobeyed his father. He's disobeyed the, the, the law. Right. But it gets worse. And he sent him into his fields to feed the swine. Now, pigs, as you well know, are mighty tasty. Okay? Particularly, it has to be said, English bacon, not the streaky bacon that you all eat, which is terrible. Um, so you need to go to England just to have the bacon, trust me. Um, and I know some of you will disagree. You all think American bacon's amazing, but, but you're wrong. You know? You can, you can be wrong. So, swine, okay? What is a swine? A swine is a ritually impure animal. Doesn't get any worse, actually. There's a wonderful... Do you remember that thing in Mark? Went with the with the um, with the demon where he kind of cast the demon out and he and he what does he do he puts it in a bunch of swine doesn't he and they go f- hurtling over the um, <laughs> hurtling over the cliff and the, and the poor non-Jew whose livelihood that is right looks at his livelihood and thinks damn you know that's that's my that's my that's my livelihood it's all gone and every Jew's there thinking well it's just pigs it's just pigs they're ritually impure anyway you know you should have sheep instead. They're, you know, they might be not, well, pigs are actually quite clever, but, um, you know, but not stubborn. So, so he is now working with, with the swine. So that makes him twice richly impure, okay? So that's strike four. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. Right, strike five. So... Because let's be honest, if he's starving, he's going to eat. That's implied in the story. So at that point, he is now ingesting stuff that they've turned their nose up at. I don't know if you have, have you ever been in a pig farm. They're not the cleanest of creatures. They're covered in scubula, as St. Paul would say. That's is a Greek word, and it does mean that. He uses it, Paul uses it in Colossians. He says, I count this as so much scubula in comparison to the joy of knowing Jesus. Not making that up. So yes, there is swearing in the Bible. Um, we translate it as rubbish, by the way, in our translation. I don't know what yours says, um, but, but it actually does mean what you think it means. Um, so so he, he basically, he's eating that stuff. So straight away, you've got, you've got that against him. Now, so he's got... Five barriers, five barriers to his father's forgiveness, okay? And all of them are major in Jewish terms. They are. You know, it's a com- complete loss of, of who he is. It, it's awful. You know, and, and you can be sure that, that they were waiting for the payoff. And the payoff they were hoping for was that they, he gets punished. Because we, we like that. And we like to see the evil punished. And, and Jesus has set him up to be quite an evil person in his own little way. Um, then he came to himself and he said, how many hired servants of my father's 
have bread enough and to spare, and I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight. I am no more worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Now, you might think that looks like repentance, but it doesn't. Does it? It's just self-interest. He's not sorry yet. You know, and he's still telling his father what to do. Even though his father's dead to him. You know, and he spent all his money. So he's, he's not learnt wisdom yet. So that would be black mark number six. So every Jewish person there is thinking, oh, you know, it's going to end really badly for this guy. So, you know, back to the father here. He says, I will go and I will arise and go to my father and say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight. So if there's, if there's some degree of, of reconciliation there, it's there. Um, and I am no more worthy to be called your son. But then it's that thing of, of, but he still wants his dad to do something for him. He doesn't, he's not owned up to the fact of how, how hurt his father is. Yeah, there's no awareness there yet. And, and one of the things that, that, that's passed over, I think, in most commentaries that I've read, is, um, he says, and he arose and came to his father. It's just one sentence, right? So he's come from a far country, and he's going home. How does he get home? He has to walk. It's a famine. How does he feed himself? He has to beg or steal. We all know it's a desert country. It's a hard road back. You know, the journey changes him. Some beginning of, 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 um, of understanding of what he's done. Um, and again, you know, if you like, and this is a little, it's a subtle thing in Luke, but Luke is, is the master of subtlety. The image in the background is one of Exodus. Because Israel was enslaved. In Egypt, we don't know whether he was in Egypt or not, probably not, but he's been a slave, and now suddenly he's on his way home, and what does the journey do in, in, in the book of Exodus, in the book of Deuteronomy, in the book of Numbers? It shows how Israel is changed by the experience of the desert, okay? It, they make a lot of mistakes, you know, the waters of Meribah, poor, poor Moses, the closest thing he gets to seeing is going up Mount Nebo and seeing the promised land in the distance, and, and God saying... Do you like that? Well, you're not having it. You know? But they learn. So don't forget the journey. And, and that is symbolic of Exodus. And, and, it, and it's subtle in Luke, but it's there. Because all Exodus is about liberation. Liberation from death. That's why, you know, you know the, the resurrection narrative is an, an Exodus narrative. It's one of the great paradigms of, of, of Scripture is Exodus. Um, another one, if you're interested, is return from exile, which is slightly different. Because Exodus implies slavery, exile implies freely chosen kind of walking away. Um, and the third one, if you're interested, is the priestly narrative. And that's all about sin. That's the one, by the way, that most of us heard when we were growing up. But there are three great themes in the, in the New Testament. 
you don't, re- you don't really hear them as often as you should. Catholic Church is really good at that one. Back in the 1950s and 60s. So, while he was yet far off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now, while he was far off, his father saw him. Why did his father see him? Because, Luke implies, every day the father goes out to the heights and looks for him. Every day. Longing for him. He saw him, was moved with compassion. Don't forget, what is the root of compassion? In Hebrew, it is... It's Rahimen, which is the word that we would translate as womb. Compassion is the womb of God. Because the womb is where everything's provided for, where you're secure, where you rest listening to the heartbeat of your mother. It's got a beautiful image of, of the motherhood of God there, which is there hidden in plain sight. But again, it's missed often in, 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 in if we don't look for it. So he's moved with compassion. And, then this, is, and this is unheard of, by the way, because I have travelled a little bit in, the, in, 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 in Israel. Um, you know, and there's a, a guy called Finley who did a great study of the Marsh Arabs, um, about 20 years ago. And one of the things he commented on was that you never see an elder in the Middle East run. It's undignified. They walk. They don't have a run. And so the image that Jesus gives us is, and people would have been scandalized by this image, by the way, is, and don't forget, because they wear these long robes, so he's kinda, he actually literally has to pick his, his robe up like this. And then, seriously. And straight away, that brings us back to that idea of foolishness. Because people are going to look at it and think, how stupid is that? Where's your dignity? And yet, the father, because he's prodigal, doesn't care. Right? It's my favorite image of scripture. I have this wonderful image in my head. Um, on my good days, of, of, of the father kind of picking, picking his skirts up, although I, not a skirt, but you know what I mean, kind of a robe, um, like, like Eric and I have to wear every, every Sunday, you know, the alb, and then kind of literally just kind of run around in his sandals. I mean, it's just a great image, this, this idea that God is so in love with us that he's willing to be foolish about it. And, and so he goes and he runs up to his son, and then it says, and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now, I would remind you Right, that he's not got. He's not, he says nowhere in the story that he's gone to the temple or the mikveh. Okay, so that means he's still richly impure, and he has eaten richly impure animals. Worse, on his journey, he's had to walk through the whole of the goyim, and so the ritual impurity is is encrusting him like like herb encrusts a steak. You know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, it's, it's there. You can actually see it, almost. That's the image that Luke gives us. What does the father do? Now, and th- there would have been a, a scandalous kind of, <gasps> when Jesus does this, because 
he falls on his neck. Now, that's our translation, and that's a closer translation to the Greek, to be fair. But that's a violent image, isn't it? It's not a gentle going up to him and kind of going... It's a kind of, literally, bear hug, putting himself out, throwing himself at his son, and almost enveloping him. And he doesn't ask, are, are you ritually clean, son? He doesn't ask that at all. You know, because God, again, and again, it looks like foolishness. But it is that falling on. You know, it, it, it's a great, great, great image. Fell on his neck and, and kissed him. You know, he's covered in dirt. You know, he's got the dust of the road. We were in New Mexico last week, and, and um, what our, um, one of our friends, uh, Father Johnny, who was here at Holy Week, he, he said to us, he said, um, I've got a little job for you to do. I, I need some panels moving. <laughs> so, um, so Eric and I said, oh, yeah, that's fine. So we kind of got on the back of this, this truck. Father Eric, because he's, he's a slightly more um, senior member of the clergy, he got to sit in the front. Um, and because I'm a, I'm a junior member of the clergy, I, I got to sit in the back, okay? And, and, and let's just say that I, I just started yoga two weeks ago, so I'm, I'm still learning the poses. But um, you try sitting with, with your, your, your trunk's facing that way and your knees are at 90 degrees for three hours. Um, you know, your body's not made to, to kind of be like that. So, um, but the, uh, <laughs> he just thought it was funny, you know? And then he said, oh, stop whinging, stop whinging. It's not your knees that are hurting, Eric. It's mine, and they hurt. So, so anyway, we get there, and, and it's in Taos, and it's this lovely house and overlooking the, the, um, the mountains in the background. And I don't know about you, but when, when somebody says a panel to me, what I think of is something about that wide, made probably of tin, and, and quite light. Okay? What I don't expect when I get there is, is a corral uh, made of, of, of metal, heavy metal, steel, um, and um, so we pull up into this, um, into this field, and we get out, and, and, and I said to Eric, I said, um, is that what he wants us to move? Uh, and where are the panels? I said, where are the panels? And, it, and, and Johnny said, oh, because, you know, Johnny's kind of very New Mexican, and, and he said, hello, okay, yes, they're there. And I said, really? Yes. What are we going to do? Well, Eric had decided that he was going to supervise, good at that. And, and Johnny, obviously, he's on, he's on crutches, so he can't do much. So, um, so and, but there are two ladies there who, who are older than, than Johnny and Eric. Uh, oh, no, not older than um, Johnny, but certainly older than Father Eric and myself, uh, whose names were, were Heather and Deborah. God bless them. Um, and, and we shifted 24 of these things in, in the heat, um, ably assisted by, by, by Father Eric telling us where to put them in the, in the, in the trailer. You know, just there, he said, just there, put it in there, okay, that's fine. Just there. It's nice to throw you under the bus occasionally, you know that, don't you? Um, and, and, and so, you know, we kind of, we kind of loaded them up. Uh, but I have to say, by the way, that there were eight in one field, and, and then, strange enough, even though Eric had been supervising everything in the trailer, at that point, when we had to drive away, he decided that the supervision was required in the front of the seat. So he kind of got in the seat, and, and I'm at the back, um, and, and I can do the plank, so I'm very happy about this, because basically I then did this while, while holding the, the metal, eight metal things that way with my feet on the, on the trailer back, okay? 
yoga's good for you that way. Good, cool strength. So what I didn't realise was, of course, because he's, he's got, as I said to you on Sunday, he's, he's got a mischievous sense of humour. Um, he basically told Johnny to hit every bump he possibly could. So, um, so we did. We, we bumped everywhere. And, um, and I was kind of being thrown all over the place. And, and um, you know, eventually we kind of get there and I, I staggered out of the, of the truck, um, looking like I had 15 pints of Guinness. Um, and, and he found it quite amusing. And then we moved the rest of it. And, and I was, we were covered, all of us, to be fair. But some of us more covered than others, let's just put it that way. <laughs> covered in dust. Absolutely covered in dust, encrusted with it. You know, and, and that's the image I want you to have of, 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 of the son. Because that's what he's covered in. He's covered in dust, and his father kisses him. You know, not even my mother would have kissed me after seeing the dust I was covered in um, last week. I'll tell you that now. Um, and at that point, the son says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight. I am no more worthy to be called thy son. And you can tell at this point that it's genuine, that something's happened, that there's been a conversion. And don't forget, in Scripture, conversion, or, you know, to give it, the metanoia is the Greek, it doesn't mean to be sorry. Okay. It means to have a changed worldview. That's what metanoia looks like. The son's worldview was completely changed because he knows exactly what he's done. He knows what it's cost his, his father. And yet he is in awe of his dad. Just coming over to him and not asking any questions and just, and just kissing him. And then having got that confession out of him, having got that recognition of, of, of a changed state of reality, which is important for mercy to, to take root, then before the son can say, you know, you can make me one of your paid servants, which would be shameful, okay? And he doesn't want to shame him. He says, bring forth quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And those three things are really important because they're, they're, they're the signs of belonging. You know, the ring is the family ring with the family seal on it. Um, most peasants in, in Palestine in the first century didn't have shoes, okay? They walked barefoot. So the idea that sandals should be called Jesus boots in one sense is historically inaccurate. You know, Jesus probably didn't wear sandals growing up. He probably wore bare feet. It's only when he got a following that maybe the rich ladies who, who looked after him, and Martha and Mary, might have bought him his first pair of shoes. But prior to that, you know, he would have walked the roads of Palestine barefoot like every peasant um, since, um, since Adam were a lad. Um, so to get that is, is there, it's important. So he's restored. So again, that image of restoration. And bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and make merry. And of course the fatted calf is a... I mean, beef is, is really expensive in the ancient world. Okay, it, It's normally given to God. Um, so it would be burnt at the temple. Um, rarely would, it be, would, be, would, be, would you eat it in, in, in the family, you just, you know, unless you were really wealthy. So again, it's a sign of, of, of wealth here. So they kill the fatted calf, but they've been saving it. It's an amazingly generous, prodigal outpouring of, of mercy and love and must have reassured the son completely that, that he was forgiven. 
Far more, actually, in one sense, than getting the robe, the ring, and the sandals. And so at that point, you'd think the story would end. But it doesn't. Now, the eldest son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called to him one of the servants and inquired what these things might be. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed a fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. Now, that's the Pharisee, okay? That's who he's aiming at. So what was the Pharisee going to do? He was angry and would not go in. Now, that's strike one against the elder son. It's a sin against hospitality, and you can't do that. Because you're showing your dad up then in public. You're basically saying to your father that, you know, you don't care about him. And don't forget, he's already treated him as if he was dead. So actually that's strike two. Sorry. All these baseball analogies, they get, they get, get confusing. So strike three against him is he makes his dad come out. You don't do that. You don't make the father of the house come out. And, and the, the word that they use in the translation, which is nearer to the Greek, is the word entreat, which is, is basically to beg. It's symbolically him falling down on his knees, his older son, and saying, please, son, come into the feast. Please. I'm begging you to come in. And so, we've already had the image of the father running you know, with his skirt pulled up. But now we have the image of him falling down on his knees and begging his eldest son, who's supposed to be the faithful one, don't forget. He's the one who stayed. And then he says the most hurtful thing that you could possibly say to any parent. Lo, these many years do I serve thee, and I never transgressed a commandment of thine, and yet thou never gave me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But when this thy son came who hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou killed for him the fatted calf. In, the, in, in our translation, it, it says, um, all these years I've slaved for you. All these years I've kind of just poured myself out for you. All these years I've been religiously observant for you. That's the, that's, that's, that's the Pharisee. I've never transgressed a commandment of thine. You see, and there's no, there's no one so blind as the one who won't see. Because, of course, he's transgressed commandments. He's treated his, his, his father as dead. He has, has seen his service of his father, where he's taking the money, by the way, so it's his money, as a servitude, not as, as something that's due as, as filial obligation, or, let's say, you know, at, the, at the best, but hopefully some kind of filial love, at, 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 you know, ideally. You know, he, he's no self-recognition there of his own brokenness. There's no self-recognition there of his own sin. Because he's so proud. You know, he's as proud as Satan. And he has, the, he has the, the, the cheek and the pride to confront his father in public. Which you can't do. You know, servants are going to see. People are going to wander out of the hall because they want to see where the, where the father's gone. 
And so the son, the eldest son, is, is in one sense, is bad. And then, of course, he, he, he does that thing, you know, well, he spent it all on harlots. And now, it doesn't say anywhere in the first part of the story that, that he spent it on harlots, you know. Um, it says he spent it on riotous living. Well, you don't need harlots to live a riotous life, do you? Well, I don't think you do anyway. Um, you know, you can, you, can, you can spend your money on gambling or, or um, booze or whatever, but you can kind of live a riotous life, and you can live prodigiously, um, but you don't necessarily need that. In one sense, that says more about the elder son than it does about the younger son. Um, you know, there's a, 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 a ton of self-righteousness here. Um, and then the father says, And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that is mine is thine, which is absolutely true, because he's already given it to him. But it was meat. It's an old English word. It was meat. It was, ra- it was right. It was just. It was the right thing to do. To make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive and was lost and is found. Restoration. And all the father looks at his son is, you know, what, do you, what are you going to do about it? And of course, Jesus is a great storyteller, so we don't know. Everyone assumes that the elder son goes into the hall. It doesn't say anywhere in Scripture that he does. And the rest of Jesus' ministry would indicate that actually the elder son didn't go into the hall, because otherwise he wouldn't have any up there. And so Henry Nouwen and people like Henry Nouwen would kind of look at this story and they might say that the, the sins of the... Of the um, the sins of the younger son are, are the sins of youth. They're the sins of our, um, our frailty. They're the sins where we're, we're still trying to find our way forward. Um, and in one sense, you know, they're forgivable. In a, in a way that the sins of our old age, our second half of life sins, are more difficult to forgive. Because often, in the second half of life, it doesn't look like they're sins. Because we're so convinced of our own righteousness that it's very difficult to, for God to get his feet in the door. Richard Raw, in one of his talks, this is particularly for men, but I'm sure, I would imagine it should apply to women too. He said there are three, three second half of life states that you can achieve. He said you can be the, the, um, the young fool, the young old fool, which is the person who's never grown up. And by that, I don't mean people who are still childlike. I mean Mick Jagger, you know, chasing after, after um, women that are... Um, would be his great, 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 great granddaughters and expecting to kind of cop off with him because he's the, the leading singer of the Rolling Stones. That's, that's a young old fool. And, and it is foolishness, um, but it, isn't, it doesn't look that bad. Does that make sense? It, it, it's stupid, but, but people seem to not be that bothered with it, really. Well, I think it's really creepy, but that's just me. Um, and then there's the, the bitter old fool, the person who, who you know, is, is, his life leads him into anger to rage, to bitterness, doesn't do the work. This is the, 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 um, the older son. And where does that end? That always ends in despair. And then there's the wise old fool. And the wise old fool is the one that recognises that you, the prowess you have as a young man is not the same as the, as the wisdom that you gain when you're older. And you're comfortable with that. You know, you are where you need to be. You've taken the journey of the spiritual life. You recognise that you're a beloved child of God. That, that, you know, you are where you are and, and God loves you. Mercy. 
the understanding. And, and our culture doesn't value that, I don't think, in, in the way it should. And, and, and the church isn't great at preaching it either. You know, the, um, as, 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 a, as an older priest, and, and I, can, I think I can say that now, uh, um, you know, 27 years into the priesthood, um, you do, you find yourself looking at some of, the, some of your younger congregations thinking, oh, God, you know, what are they playing at? You know, you can be really judgmental of them, forgetting the kind of the journey that you took and not giving them the time that they need to kind of grow up. Um, you know, and you can look around at, at society and think it's falling apart, you know, and, and then you get bitter about it, you get angry. And then finally you look at yourself and you think, I'm not that good either. So where does that go? And what you're left with then, at that point, if you've not done the work, if you've not let God in, if you've not let the prodigal father fall on your neck and embrace you, it is a place of bitterness. And when you die, you'll die bitter. And there's no worse death than that. No worse death. And I'm sure that's where the Catholic idea of purgatory comes from. I really do. That idea that we, we, sometimes we need time that we don't get. I'm convinced that my granddad went to purgatory. My, my granddad died a bitter old man at the age of 93. And um, it was horrific the last 10 years of his life. He was so bad that none of us went to see him. Um, and yet, my abiding memory of my granddad when I was growing up was sitting on the, the handlebars of his bike. As he, as he rode me from, from my dad's house to, to his. You know, but the person that I knew and loved wasn't there at the end. But because I believe in the mercy of God, you know, when I, when I did my men's rite of passage with Richard Raw uh, many years ago now, at the last day they get you to talk about, you know, they get you to pray and, and ask for the guidance of, um, of, of people that you've admired you know, heroes, if you like, if you will. Um, so, you know, I, I, I've got my list. Francis of Assisi was on that. Um, St. Columba of Iona was on it. Um, St. Cuthbert of Lindisfarne was on it. St. Aidan, the fire of the north, was on it. And I went to bed satisfied with that, with that, um, that list. I was happy. Um, and that night, I had a dream about my granddad. And, and it wasn't bitter granddad. It was transformed granddad. And I woke up, and the last name on my little list was Patrick O'Connor. And probably the thing that made that experience the experience it was for me, because it was, it was transformative, was the fact that, that God gave me the gift of my granddad again. I'm not expecting you to believe that, by the way. I mean, some people don't believe in purgatory. I do. I like the fact that we might get more than a second chance. Um, it's one of the reasons I like being Catholic, to be honest. And, and that is, is what it's about. You know, it's about accepting it. You know, my granddad wasn't in a place where he could accept God's mercy and God's love. But God put him in a place where that was possible. But, but all I'm saying to all of us in this year of mercy is, you know, let's take the opportunity that we've been given. Let's experience God's mercy. Let's leave our, our burdens and our, our, our chains behind. And, and let's walk into the freedom of God. You know, we are beloved sons and daughters of our Father. Um, so I'm, I'm going to finish 
some of you won't be surprised by this. I'm going to finish by the poem. Um, and, and sorry, this is one of mine. So, um, as, as Father Eric says, um, what is it? Um, me poetry. He goes, we got me poetry. And, uh, you see, and I get that from my granddad, by the way, because my granddad was Irish. So, um, so was mum. So, me. And I know it's wrong, by the way. I know it's, I know it's gram- grammatically incorrect. But, um, but, you know, it's... And, and this is... The, I would say, for me, and, and I'd share this with you and kind of a little bit of vulnerability at the end, because I'm not wanting you to think that I'm telling you that, you know, I'm not having a go at you, because this is the same journey that I've been on since I was 18 years old. And, and I actually think that I've got to a place in my life where, for the first time in, in many, many years, I mean, since I was 18 or 19, probably, um, I'm kind of at peace with where I am and who I am. And I kind of know that God loves me. And more importantly, I, I can actually accept that. And, and the last three or four years have been instrumental in that, in that journey coming to this, this point here. I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I'm just grateful to be where I am today. Um, so, so it's called Wedding Feast. I feel like the man who was not dressed for the occasion, found wandering at the crossroads, now standing at the doors, unsure of my reception. What do I say to my good Lord, my friend, my Jesus? My raiment is rent, ripped, and ripe. I bear my scars and wounds, some proudly, but some a source of shame, and these I cover but still they weep and suppurate, staining me further. Yet my eyes are hale, and there is a rough cleanness to my gaze when I can lift it from self-introspection. This is what I have made of myself, truly part of what I have made. This is what I feel on my worst days. Then I read at Julian's shrines, shrine, Julian of Norwich, that is. Our sins do not cause him to cease loving us. I want to believe that. I do. But I didn't. Not really. Too good for one like me. Spiritual pride is a bitch to shed once you're clothed in it. Love is always for someone else unless it's been earned. Yet Julian says it's free. As always, I reacted doing something opposite to hurt myself once again. It was good to feel bad again. Deep down, don't you recognize that feeling? But this love is unrelenting. That love of Julian's was persistent, kept nipping at my ankles, annoying, vaguely irritating, but there. I read Julian this retreat. In my soul, I cried, though I have shed no open tears. And this is all Julian, this next bit. Love was his meaning, only love. If I could suffer more for you, I would. Are you satisfied that I have, had, that I have suffered for you? I would suffer for you again right gladly. All shall be well. All manner of things shall be well what Jesus said to Julian. 
So I stand at the door of the feast before my love, and behold, I knock, and it echoes as on a day of doom, and he comes forth clad in his kingly raiment. I would enter the feast, good Lord, but I am underdressed, and my soul shies from you, for I am ashamed of who I've become, for refusing your love and clinging to my sin, overweened by pride, resentment, and dark envy, over which I have put on my shame as a standard and a banner. So I have come to ask your pardon, because I do love you. I want to love you well and true, but I can't without you. Lift up your gaze, my friend. Be not afraid. I look into the darkness of his eyes, flecked with the, gilt, the glint of dawn. He smiles a smile of right gladness and lifts me up in a bear hug, smothering me, holding me fast in his embrace. I love you. I have always loved you. I will always love you. You exist because I love you. I am the ground of all you do and all you are. I have never been separate from you. When you went into the far country and squandered your inheritance, I brought you back and clothed you. When you ran away, afraid of our intimacy, it is I who waited by the door. We have sat at the fire by the sea, and I have told you I love you. So now, my stubborn love, do you believe? Yes. For my heart has melted, and some weight has been lifted. The rod no longer stings my back, but I will need all your help, my friend, to live wisely. You shall have it all, my good friend, for I am love, and love is my meaning for you. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. All shall be well, Simon, little man. All shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Amen. I wrote that the year of my 25th anniversary, and I would say the last two years I've, um, I've been working on it. And that's the journey we're all on. But we're going home. That's the thing to remember. And home is where the heart is. And God's heart is love. Love.